my babies, and once again, welcome to Poker in the Ears. I'm Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. Here's my work wife, James Hardigan. Happy Bondiversary, Joe. Yeah, we have done a lot of bonding over bond. Coming up on <laughs> today's show, every week we talk a little bit of bond. Some weeks we talk a little bit more of bond. This week, it is all bond, James Bond. It is the 15th anniversary of Casino Royale, and due to the high number of poker-related scenes, we've gotten permission from the Poker Stars Fat Cat to do an entire episode on the subject. And again, worth highlighting, this was not even our idea. This was a PokerStar Supremo, not quite the Fat Cat, but high up the food chain, who suggested we do this show. So don't blame us. It just shows that repetition works. Like, she just finally was like, okay, fine. I also love James Bond. Uh, That's right. So, we got a James Bond Casino Royale-related guest. Uh, So, you know how on the card counter, when they couldn't get Oscar Isaac or Tiffany Haddish to do an interview, they would send me? (laughs) Well, we narrowly missed out on getting Daniel Craig. We ended up with the next best thing. We got the Joe Stapleton of Casino Royale, the poker consultant for the film, Dr. Tom Sandbrook, will be with us today. James, how TF did you track this guy down? In a word, Joe, Google. Um, I knew (laughs) of Tom because he was on poker TV in the mid-2000s when I started. I knew he was the poker advisor on this film. I know he hasn't been in the industry for a while. I Googled him and found out he is now a professor of psychology at an English university. So I'm like, look, I know you've moved on from this, but any interest in talking Casino Royale? And absolutely, he's up for it. So he's going to join us on the show today. That's so cool. I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing from another poker consultant, especially at a movie as high profile as yeah. this, with as much poker as this. This week's super fan is Liam Devine. And uh, guess what the subject is? Interestingly, this will be the second Casino Royale Superfan quiz on this show. The first one was a disaster because the Superfan didn't show up. Joe hadn't rewatched the movie. I wasted a lot of time doing a very tough quiz. This time around, Patrick has put together, I'd say, 90%, and Jimmy the Bastard has sprinkled some fairy dust on top. All right. Well, uh, I watched the movie a a couple of weeks ago, did take copious notes. It wasn't last night, though, so anything could happen. Uh, luckily, my babies, all of this James Bond hullabaloo saves you from having to hear any of my bad beat stories from Vegas. Yes! Uh, I played three tournaments. I did not cash. Uh, didn't really have any more than 50 bigs at any point. I did win one time when I was all in at risk. <gasps> and and on the third day, I finally, there's no exaggeration, on the third day, I improved on a turn and or river for the first time in about four months. I made one flush on this trip, which is not a complaint. That's a huge improvement. I hadn't made a flush since March. So I'm super, super excited about that. I think I might just start running like normal. Who knows? Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, let's just rattle through all the stuff we need to hit today. Uh, The big 20 players awards are still live and will be live on the PokerStars blog until the beginning of December. So please make sure you vote in all 10 categories. Check out the 50 nominated hands and vote for your favorite in each of the 10 categories. We discussed this on the live stream on Monday. 
the Big 20 Rewind. It's been announced. It starts oh, yeah. on Sunday. This is the tournament series themed around 20 years of PokerStars history, 20 milestone moments. And Joe, we ran through some of the special prizes that have been added here. There's so much value up for grabs here. Round the world trips, holidays to the Bahamas, trip to Vegas, a brand new car. All can be won for what I think are decent buy-ins. These aren't all high roller events. They're at $11 buy-ins, $30 buy-ins. Um, so check that out in the PokerStars lobby. We'll go into this more detail again when we stream the very first big 20 rewind final table on monday i do want to quickly highlight that the stream we did on monday with ali shaban from the half price sunday million was freaking awesome yeah yeah so much fun uh and and pacey too right like if you're yeah. Uh, it's not going to be a total slog to get through it if you want to go back and watch the replay. Loved having Arlie in the booth. Loved the personality of the players that were involved. And uh, there was definitely some button clicking going on. But in my opinion, that's just as fun to watch as the uh, the ultra high stakes players. James, I do think maybe we should do one episode eventually where we say who we're actually voting for in the Big 20. Who our um choices are. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I kind of don't want to do that. And it's not because I think that... No, it's a tough choice. I, but I figure we might as well actually have an opinion on it. Yeah, I, obviously I have an opinion, but I don't... I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe I'm thinking with the mindset of a journalist who used to be governed by electoral law that I shouldn't try and sway anyone. I and see. That's, that's why I don't necessarily want to share my opinion because I don't want to be seen to unduly influence people. Well, maybe right before the answers are revealed, we could say who it was that we voted for. So we don't do that. But I do think it would be good to actually make a decision on some of these. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll talk more about those awards in future weeks. And by the way, with the Big 20 Rewind kicking off, it does mean that every single day is going to be themed around a specific year and that means the next couple of podcasts are also going to be walking down memory lane so next week will all be about the early years of stars the launch of the site in 2001 the birth of the ept in 2004 so the show we do next week and the guests we talk to are very much going to be linked to that and we'll talk about that at the end of this week's episode the week after that It'll be around the era of the big game and shark cage. So again, we'll be talking to people specific to that era in PokerStars history. So make sure you listen to the end of this week's episode to find out what we're going to be doing in future shows. This week, it is all about 007. I am acutely aware that that track is not actually one of David Arnold's tracks from the score for Casino Royale. The Pokestars Fat Cat gave us permission to do this show, was not going to spend the money on actually licensing the music from Casino Royale. But hey, it's, it's the best sound alike we could find. Um, Joe, before we launch into this, I just wanted to provide a bit of background and context. Sure. Because... I think it's important to find out, or important to reveal rather, that there were two previous screen versions of Casino Royale before this official entry in 2006. Two. Yeah, so it's the very first Bond novel written by Ian Fleming in 1952, originally published in 1953. And interestingly, the story of the novel is pretty much directly replicated in the film that we're discussing today. In 2006. Yeah, and it's quite a short book. So it really covers what I'd say are the second and third acts of the film. It starts 
at Casino Royale with the card game, which in the novel is Baccarat. They choose Bond because he's apparently the best Baccarat player in the British Secret Service. This is one of those movie improvements over the book. Baccarat is a complete game of chance. There's like... 0.5% skill in it. So the idea that you would send Bond to beat Le Chiffre at Baccarat because he's better at the game is ludicrous. Well, it's pretty realistic that the British government would be that stupid. I guess so. The premise (laughs) being that Le Chiffre is a banker for the Russian Secret Service. It's set during the height of the Cold War. He's lost all of their money. He's trying to win it back at Baccarat because Bond is able to to, to break him. The idea is that the British are then going to be able to bring Le Chiffre in and he's going to turn on his former paymasters and give them loads of secrets on the Russians. Instead, Le Chiffre captures Bond, tortures him, strapping him to a chair and beating his testicles to try and get the money, find out where it is. But then an agent from Smirsh, the equivalent of the 00 section in the Russian secret service in the KGB, kills Le Chiffre because he's lost all their money, leaves Bond alive And then, of course, the final act is Bond falling in love with Vespa, only to find out that she is actually an agent for the Russians. She commits suicide because she is madly in love with Bond. Bond feels betrayed. This informs the misogyny that runs through the character in all the future stories. The last line of the book is that the bitch is dead, which makes it into the film. So that's the novel. Fleming wait, so sold wait, it. So James Bond was like a super woke feminist until... Uh... No. No, no. There are some really nasty lines in the book. Uh, Fleming was not woke. Fleming, uh, his attitude towards women left a lot to be desired, and that very much informed the character of Bond. Um, So Fleming sold the rights to the book. It was made into a US TV production in 1954. And this is back in the day when TV was performed live. So it was like a stage play, but broadcast live. Fortunately, someone took a 16 millimeter or maybe it was even eight millimeter recording of it from a screen so it's a really shitty quality recording but we do still have it for posterity and because they understood that in the 1950s american tv viewers didn't really want to see a british secret service agent it was card sense jimmy bond of the cia who was the lead character literally they called him jimmy bond correct oh Uh, my god Played by Barry Nelson, the American actor who would go on to play the uh, hotel manager in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. He was accompanied by Clarence Leiter of the British Secret Service. And the characters of Vespa Lind and Rene Mathis became this composite character of Valerie Mathis. The only notable thing about this TV production is that Peter Lorre plays Le Chiffre and is actually really effective in that role. Oh, wow. Cool. So as the years went on, the rights passed down. So when Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman bought the rights to all the Bond books, Casino Royale was excluded. They couldn't make it part of the official series, which they started with Dr. No in 1962. Charles K. Feldman acquired the rights, and he made What's New Pussycat in the mid-1960s and decided to make a spoof Casino Royale film, which is atrocious. There are a few saving graces. Um... Can I ask you a question about this now? Uh, okay, so uh, you may remember as a teenager, when James and I met, by the way, we bonded over the fact that we were both big James Bond fans. I did not realize what that actually meant uh, to, <laughs> to James compared to me. Now, I had collected every Bond movie on VHS tape that was available, and Casino Royale was difficult for me to track down. It was before the internet. I had to like make a lot of phone calls. I had to like call like these big distribution houses, 
And I remember not liking it as a James Bond movie, but as like an old timey comedy thinking it was kind of okay. Even through that lens, is it atrocious? It's really atrocious. It had more writers than you could actually fit on screen. It went through seven directors. The star of the movie walked out midway through the production, which is why the plot makes no sense. That final scene, they throw in everything bar the kitchen sink. Um, It's appalling. And it fails on every level. Uh, Again, I guess two notable things to say about it. Um, Ursula Andress, the original Bond girl in Doctor No, plays Vesper Lind. And Orson Welles plays Le Chiffre pretty effectively. Peter Laurie, Orson Welles, I mean, those are big shoes to fill. Absolutely. Uh, So the fact that that role has been cast consistently well in all three screen versions says a lot. I believe that Eon Productions finally acquired the rights to Casino Royale in the early 2000s. And it happened at a point where I think the series had reached a bit of an impasse. They just made Die Another Day, um, which I think is probably the worst single entry in the entire franchise. It has few, if any, redeeming features. I think they'd reached the point where Pierce Brosnan was now in his early 50s and maybe it was time to recast the character. And I think there are two important films that came out around that time which informed the direction of the Bond series. The first is The Bourne Identity. And I think that proved to the filmmakers that audiences were ready for a more gritty, realistic spy film. Something they had tried to do with The Living Daylights in 1987 but audiences weren't ready for it. Now they not were. just not just realistic, but I want to say like the the pace of the action too, right? Like Pierce Brosnan is like kind of standing around a lot of the time while the action is happening to him and around him, and just sort of mildly reacting to it. Which I will admit, at the time, I thought was kind of cool a little bit of the time. But you've got these fight scenes in Jason Bourne where it's like pop 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 martial arts, right? Like yes. it's time to. To adapt yes. martial arts into all fight scenes, even when white people are fighting. And I guess it was the first two Bourne movies because uh, Supremacy came out in 2004. So they had that to work from as well. Um, the second film was Batman Begins, which proved that you can reboot a franchise and not worry about pre-existing canon. Not worry about it linking to the storyline of the former movies. So they decided to press the reset button and basically say... Let's set Bond in the modern age and let's follow his story from the beginning as he gets his double O status and goes on his first mission, his first proper mission, to Casino Royale. Cast Daniel Craig in the role. I know Barbara Broccoli fought for him to get the role. And I'll be honest with you, Joe, and I'm happy to admit I was wrong. I was a doubter. I thought it was a terrible decision. I didn't think Daniel Craig was going to be good. No blonde Bonds. No blonde bonds. And I went into the cinema in 2006 not expecting this film to be good. And I am so pleased that I was wrong because I came out absolutely delighted from this film when I first saw it. I, I went to this, uh, to this movie with my dad. And I often have really interesting, uh, I often, when I go with my dad to the movies, don't like a movie as much when I see it with him and then later on rewatch it and like it a lot. And that's because my dad's kind of a grump and my dad's really tough to please. And I can sense him either sleeping or not liking it or whatever. And I remember being blown away. This is what happened was I was blown away by the first, whatever it is, two hours and 10 minutes of this movie. And then when it ended, sort of, on a cliffhanger, I was livid. Wow. I was so angry. 
And the same thing, I don't know if this, yeah, the same thing happened when I saw Lord of the Rings, uh, like the Fellowship of the Ring. I still wasn't used to movies setting up other movies. I was so, and it actually, the emotion of like having not like a closed ending yanked away from me completely tainted my view of the rest of the movie. And I remember walking around saying, I didn't really like Casino Royale for the first bunch of years. Uh, looking back on it now, I'm with you, James. Uh, in fact, uh, I will I will get to my main point here, that if you look at this uh, mathematically, this is the best James Bond movie. Uh, if you look at it from all the different categories you, you judge James Bond movies on, it's number one or number two in almost all of them, right? So it's uh, best, best song. Best pre-credits, best villain, best Bond girl. Uh, except that my brother's uh, mother-in-law's name last name is Lind, and that kind of ruins it for me. Um, <laughs> best action sequences, the best opening scene, best opening titles, right? Like, these are all oh, like yeah. bang, 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 bang. Like, all number one. So even if you don't agree that it's number one, the, um, the, the, like, the average of all these scores, it's still way up there. I completely agree with you. And to talk about the pre-credit sequence... I remember the trailer having these shots in black and white, and I thought that was just going to be a gimmick in the trailer. I love the fact they did it in the film. And that opening sequence from the moment that Dryden gets out of his car, walks into the building, goes up in the elevator, it's so well paced. It's so well cut. And I'm so glad, so glad that Martin Campbell and Stuart Baird, the editor, pared that down and lost the whole scene where Bond goes to a cricket match in Pakistan and that the first we see of his first kill is straight into that explosive fight in the bathroom where they're knocking down cubicles and breaking sinks. Originally, it was a much longer sequence with a little bit of setup. It doesn't need it. It is such an awesome start to the movie. Yeah, an awesome start to the movie. It, it sets the tone really well in also that, you know, at how difficult it is to kill a person. Um, you know, you have the, the bond from the 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, that little turn to camera bang yeah. is really all it takes most of the time. There's no blood. There's no struggle. It's just a, or if there is a struggle, it's very brief. And this, you're immediately like, oh, Oh, okay. Like this, yeah. this whole movie is going to be a struggle. And one of the criticisms that was leveled against Die Another Day very fairly is the amount of bad CGI. And the only CGI we have in the opening action I thought Jar Jar Binks was a weird addition, yeah. <laughs> uh, on the construction site is CGI to remove the safety ropes. Even then, this is a phenomenal action sequence, arguably the best in the franchise's history. Yeah. And I remember seeing this for the first time, and I don't handle heights particularly well, so I was literally sat in the cinema gripping the armrests and feeling every hair on my body stand on end. It was just... And how good is the free-running dude, right? It just adds an extra quality to that scene which just you know hadn't been done before yeah and it was again finally you know the filmmakers are paying attention to like what is going on in the world right not just ignoring the fact that you know i think the first time i saw free running was in this movie called uh, district b13 this french movie and you know a lot of movies ignored that and then all of a sudden like oh no no this is like this is the next step in action sequences that that scene uh the crane scene 
when I rewatched it recently, my girlfriend gasped aloud in our living room, having seen the movie before at least 11 times during like just gasp after gasp after gasp. And I think it's kind of funny, but also like it's that good. Like it is. Yeah, it is that gripping. Uh, now, we're going to discuss the poker scenes in this movie with Tom Sandbrook. So we're going to skip over the poker hands as we go through the film. Um, poker is introduced when Bond goes to the Bahamas. And I think one of the reasons why this film is so close to my heart is also the connection that we personally have to it, right? Sure. The fact that it's set in Prague. It's set in the Bahamas. So many of the locations that we know from the live events that we've attended over the years are in this film, including the Ocean Club, which is officially part of the Atlantis Resort, where we used to go every year for the PCA. Including Um, also that people think it takes place in Monte Carlo, which we go to all the time. Yeah, I don't know where they get that from. Goldeneye has a scene in Monte Carlo, by the way. (laughs) There you go, if you want a hashtag Bond fun fact. Um, I'm glad you noted, Joe, the Mondeo scene, which is one of the weakest things about the film, not just that moment, but the absurd amount of product placement in these in this film. It haunts the Bond films through the Roger Moore era, right through the Pierce Brosnan films, through this Daniel Craig film. This was the first Bond movie released by Sony Pictures. Yeah. The amount of Sony shit in this film, from their mobile phones, their Vio laptop, to their Blu-ray players, is just really painful. It is... It is the one thing that takes me out of this movie and makes me go, Ugh. The, the The shot of him driving the Ford in the Bahamas is straight out of a commercial. It yeah. is, I mean, some, you know, those of us with a keen eye can spot product placement. I thought some of the Sony stuff at least made sense. Um, you know, like in, in, in Piccadilly Circus, right? There's a big... Yeah. Sony screen like that's not that far off this shot it's almost like they got a different director to shoot these bits and I they probably did right it was probably a second unit anyway uh these commercial shots of the Ford this is by far my least favorite thing it's not even a Mustang like why isn't he driving a Mustang at least he's driving like a like a fucking four-door it's a Mondeo because ultimately you want to get a product into the movie that you think a lot of people are going to buy um (laughs) Yeah, it, it is an issue for sure. Um, luckily, those moments are few and far and they between. And they got it together for the last movie too. Like there's still a couple of product shots, but at least it's like really high-end stuff that you think that Bond would be using anyway. It's not like hilariously a fucking Ford Mondeo. Yeah, that is true. Um, if we're going to talk about action sequences, by the way, it's not just the construction site. Also, the scene at Miami Airport, again, really tense, really brutal, really well done. And I guess in writing this movie, they thought, look, the novel starts where the premise is that Le Chiffre has lost all this money and Bond's going to try and like break him at Casino Royale. The movie's like, well, let's see how he lost the money. And we learn that it's because he shorted the airline stock, but Bond thwarts the terrorist plot that stops the share price from dropping. And I, I like that. I love that setup. It adds a first act to the story and gives you a movie, gives you a full-length feature, whereas the book is probably only two-thirds of a film. Um, and that whole action sequence, again, is really, really impressive before we get to the whole premise of Bond going to Montenegro, going to Casino Royale, and interestingly, introducing the main Bond girl, Vespa, an hour into the film. Eva Green does not appear on screen until roughly an hour into this film. 
Well, I think that that that's uh, pretty wise of them to do because when Bond is betting down multiple women at the same time, um, you know, not literally at the same time, but like you know, in between each other, it does kind of in today's day and age put a a, a different spin on it. Uh, than maybe we would have thought of before. So the fact that they come like one after the other and not sort of in between each other, I think helps a little bit. I thought the most unrealistic thing about the Miami airport scene was just how well that airport was working before Bond got there. Yeah, I should point out (laughs) that that airport is mostly Prague and Nassau. Again, two airports we know incredibly well. Um, And they used an airfield in the UK for the exterior sequences. But... We then get to the Hotel Splendid. We get to Casino Royale. I love the atmosphere. It feels both old-worldy and it also feels modern. It feels very kind of like vintage Bond, whilst at the same time not feeling like a period piece. Um, and the Aston Martin, the modern Aston Martin, having had the DB5 in the Bahamas, we now have the latest iteration with all the gadgets built in, namely a very convenient gadget yeah which detects if you've been poisoned and allows your heart to be reactivated. I mean, they could not have given him anything better in the glove compartment, right? Well, especially in 2006. Now all that's already in your iPhone. But in 2006, that was a, a hefty piece of equipment over in the, uh, the, the glove box. So the scenes in between the poker, which we'll talk about in a moment, it includes the incredible stairwell fight, the so-called machete fight, which also gives you the most human bond has been on screen in years when he goes back to the hotel room and he's basically just trying to stitch himself, piece him back to get himself back together whilst taking a drink. And then of course, later discovers that Vespa is utterly traumatized by what she has witnessed. And he has to comfort her. The scene where there's just the two of them sat in the shower. This is what I want from a bond film. Verisimilitude, realism, just a feeling that these people are actually human beings and not superheroes. Yeah, not superheroes and not uh, completely unfeeling, uncaring. Um, You know, there's a time for that. You want to know that they're capable of it sometimes uh, and able to turn it off when they have to. And this really does set the tone for that to be able to, you know, to say that, oh, this is something that we can care about rather than just watching a cartoon character. Um, something I meant to look into before we had this conversation, is there actually a driver in that Aston Martin when it does that barrel roll? I know they did three of them, by the way, and those cars are 300 grand each. So they basically wiped, spent a million quid on destroying Aston Martins. But that barrel roll is insane. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would guess no, but I don't know how you get it to do that uh, without their being someone in it to hit those things properly so i don't know yeah but that is the only real car chase in this movie and it's a really shocking moment when bond sees vespa tied in the road and swerves off and then of course crashes is captured then we get the torture scene taken directly from the book the only difference being in the book le Chiffre uses a carpet beater in the film he has the knot on the end of the rope we spoke recently about how solid Daniel Craig's performances in No Time to Die. How good are both he and Mads Mikkelsen in this scene? They are both sweaty. Daniel Craig as Bond is legitimately terrified. He shows genuine weakness as well as bravado. Clearly never going to give it away. 
turns the whole situation to a joke. The whole, the world's going to know you died scratching my balls. This is a really effective sequence. It, it is super effective. It's so weird that um, when I was watching this, I was like, is, is this what I think it is? Like, is this... I was like very shocked that a I'd never heard of this form of torture before, uh, and b that they like they did that in this movie um, and showed it about as graphically as you could, right? Like, yeah, there's unless they specifically put a camera under there, uh, that's about as much as you could possibly see of it. And I do remember like this is where I started not liking the movie through no fault of the movie. But from the moment he veers the car off the road, that's where I'm like, oh, this movie's taking a turn where I don't want it to go. And in retrospect, all of it makes sense and it's all really well done. But it was this is like where I think has the biggest departure from any other Bond movie is from that moment where the car turns over. Yeah. uh, And it all just sort of gets sort of weird and slow and the twists and turns uh, come a lot faster and harder. And honestly, at the time, harder for me to follow. Yeah, and it's also a weird one, right? Because Bond doesn't kill the villain. It's Mr. White who comes in and kills the villain because ultimately the organization, which, make no mistake about it, at this point the filmmakers were trying to set up Spectre as the organization behind all this. They had rights issues, and that meant when they came to make Quantum of Solace, they had to create this alternative organization called Quantum. Then they got the rights to Spectre and tried to retcon it unsuccessfully. Um Interestingly, Mr. White, or as I like to call him, and you're either going to get this reference or you aren't, Matilda's grandfather, is the first villain introduced in this film. He's the first person we see on screen at the start of the film. And of course, he's the person that Bond captures at the end of the film, the scene you referred to earlier on, Joe. And that is where Quantum of Solace starts, picking up from that very last scene in Casino Royale. But before we get there, I don't even had a chance to check out the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, but this is the sequence which I wish was still in the edit is the Bond being rushed to the emergency room, them getting him to hospital, Mathis being the first person who walks into the room and Bond trying to reach for a scalpel because he thinks it's Mathis who's betrayed him and kind of falls out of bed and then it kind of picks up where we do in the actual film where he's kind of going in and out of consciousness and sees Mathis's shadow and he's like, no, not him. I like the extended sequence which didn't make it into the final film. Yeah, I think that it's necessary, too, because it's a little confusing uh, the way things are left. I I couldn't, uh, and you know me and my memory, um, I couldn't remember. I was like, I don't think Mathis really is the bad guy in this, but I can't really remember where we go because I I know he's in the next movie. And if he he were, Bond probably would kill him. So I, I think that that probably would have been better left in also. Yeah, I love the fact that they keep you guessing, by the way. At the end, when M says, well, I guess this clears Mathis, and Bond went, no, all we've done is prove that she's guilty. We've not proved his innocence. Keep sweating him. I, I kind of like that. It's brutal, but, you know, it- it's-, it's probably true to life. And, of course, the conclusion of the movie takes place in Venice, a location that Bond has been in before, most notoriously in Moonraker, where the pigeon did a double take as he went past on a hovering gondola. Oh, Jesus Christ. But this obviously is a much more dramatic conclusion uh, with Vespa effectively killing herself. And you really feel, again, Daniel Craig is so good in this film. You really feel everything he's going through. 
the pain of losing her, the pain of being betrayed, the anger that he ever trusted this woman to start with. And then quietly, we see Mr. White walk away with the money in the background before Bond is able to catch up with him. Um, I remember at the time thinking the weakest part of the film was the Venice sequence. Actually, it's pretty good. Yeah, and again, this the the lens through which I saw it originally, I was so mad about all of this. I was so mad that he didn't save her. So mad that um, he didn't get an answer out of her. So mad that um, we don't see what happens uh, after he catches up with Mr. White. And that's that's my immaturity, right? I, I blame it all on that for the things just not happening the way that, that I expected them to do because I wasn't as disenchanted by the last couple of Bond movies that you as you were. Um, I knew they weren't good. I knew that most people didn't think they were good, but I still kind of liked them anyway. I didn't mind them. And so I wasn't really ready for this. I wasn't ready for this whole... I thought that it was totally necessary for Bond to evolve in this way and catch up to the modern era of action filmmaking, but I wasn't exactly ready for the big changes they made to the fact that it wasn't a super happy ending, not Bond doesn't always succeed at everything, uh, that he is fallible. All of these things kind of bugged me at first. Okay, it's time to talk about the poker in Casino Royale. Joe, before we introduce our guest, as a poker consultant to motion pictures yourself, is there anything you want to say as an overview of the Hold'em scenes in this film? Motion picture, singular. Thank you, though. <laughs> um Yes, again, I, I've talked about this a little bit recently. Um, my retro analysis of this. In 2006, when I saw this movie and I knew a little bit about poker, it really the poker really pissed me off, and I thought that they had done a bad job. Having watched it again a couple of weeks ago, with the knowledge of being a poker consultant, I actually think the poker is mostly fine in this movie. And there's like little things that are up to interpretation. Whereas if you look at things uh, with the best possible interpretation, the poker is like pretty good and or fine. And I think that hopefully after we talk to Dr. Tom, everyone else is going to be feeling the same way. Well, let's bring him into the conversation. Let's introduce former Poker TV presenter, commentator, and the poker advisor on Casino Royale, Dr. Tom Sambrook. Welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you. This um, is so cool. Thank you. I remember Dr. Tom and the Axeman from Poker Night Live. I remember Dr. Tom from Sky Poker. I had no idea that it wasn't just a nickname. You are an actual doctor. You are a professor of psychology. I am. In fact, I'm a doctor twice, James. So I should be Dr. Dr. Tom, really. <laughs> I, have, I, I have two PhDs. That is, uh, that's the true fact. Oh, Fantastic. Man. Let's talk about the Dr. Tom backstory, though. How did the TV gig come about? Because I'm guessing that's what then led to you working on this movie. Yeah, pretty much. So that was basically, um, I was lucky enough to hit the, the sort of poker boom at, at exactly the right point. So at the time when, previous to Sky, Poker Night Live was looking for people who could come in and, and talk about poker coherently, the number of people who could talk about poker, but also be relied upon to turn up at the studio <laughs> on time, even when there was a meaty cash game going on somewhere else. Mm. It was basically me and the Axeman at the time. So it was just a case of being in the right place at the right time. Fantastic. So how did the Bond gig come about? 
Well, uh, I was also uh, doing a sideline in in minor theatre and film acting, uh, not that you'd notice really. And as a consequence of that, I was privy to some of the casting briefs that came through. So again, it was just lucky that Casino Royal decided to look for um, the poker advisor, not via poker channels. I mean, it could, of course, obviously have walked into the Vic Casino and got anyone they wanted. Yeah. But they advertised it via standard theatrical channels. Uh, and so again, I was just lucky enough to be unusually, and back then it was unusual, uh, a genuine poker player who was privy to those kinds of of casting calls. Oh my God, I just had a vision of like Michael G. Wilson walking into the Vic and Mickey Wernick or Willie Tan <laughs> ending up as the poker consultant <laughs> on this film. Um, maybe it's good they did go down that route. Um, so what what was your job on the movie exactly i know obviously you were at the shoot at barandov studios where the game takes place at casino rail but did you advise on any of the other poker in the movies because there's scenes in the bahamas did you get to see the script before they shot a single frame yeah 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 all that so basically my my two kind of briefs uh what i was being paid for were first of all to make the actors look like they'd been playing poker you know for zillions of years yeah um and that was a fairly uh, tough gig because uh, many of them, of course, had not played poker before. So I was catching them. You know, poker was way down the list in terms of, of uh, pre-production. So they were much more interested in getting these people in really nice looking suits and dresses <laughs> than they were at, at making them look like um, hardened poker players. So I would be catching these guys in random European cities. I get a call maybe two days before saying, we need you in Berlin, we need you in Prague, we need you in Belgrade because that's the moment where this guy's got time to meet you. Wow. And so I'd get maybe half an hour, maybe an hour, uh, often in some sort of cloakroom underneath a, a movie studio to try and just quickly boot camp them into you know, doing sensible things as opposed to dumb things. So that was one side of the job. The other part of the job was, um, or at least that I was being paid for, was to be present on set when the actual poker was happening, just in case um, the director um, had something to ask. So, for example, when he heard the actor saying, you've got two pair, I think it was Le Chief, he was yeah. quite sure I couldn't be right. It had to be two pairs, right? Two pairs sounds weird. Get the poker guy up here. And I had to tell him several times, no, it's definitely two pair. It will sound really weird if he says two pairs. Right. So, and, and like, can these guys really take their jackets off halfway through a poker tournament? Is that allowed? You know, it's these, <laughs> these sorts of things where suddenly people want to know about it right during shooting. So those are the kind of official jobs. Did you get the sense that they kind of like had done some quick Wikipediaing and didn't actually know the game that well? No, it was better than that, but it, it wasn't quite good enough. So that, yeah. that sort of takes me to the thing I absolutely wasn't being hired for, which was to comment on the script. Right. But when ah. I saw it, when I saw the script, I, I was having kittens because there were some really big problems with it. Um, so, for example, in the, the famous hand where Bond, um, he thinks he's got this lock solid, uh, he's got this solid tell um, of Le Chiefs. Yes. Uh, and he uh, he basically goes all in, um, calling Le Chiefs Big Bet and finds out his, his read on the tell is quite wrong. Now, Unfortunately, in the, in the previous version of the script, what happens is when Bond sees the tell, he goes all in. He goes all against Le Chief, believing that Le Chief is bluffing. Um, and of course, if that were the case, if Bond really thought that Le Chief was sitting with nothing, the last thing he would do would be to go all in against the guy who's bluffing. He, he put in a little teaser bet. 
so that's exactly what, in the revised version of the script, Bond does. He, he teases with sheep into making the big all-in. But to get to get this word through to the higher echelons, through to Martin Campbell, was a really slow, long process. It took about four weeks to get the message through. Yeah, because I think that's an important thing. And obviously, we'll talk about what you did with the card counter in a moment, Joe. But the role of a poker advisor, poker consultant, is exactly as it says, to consult, to advise. There's no guarantee they're actually going to listen to you, right? You can't dictate what happens in the movie. That's what directors do. Yeah, all you can do is do your best. Uh, and of course, they have the final decision. I mean, he was, he was, Martin Campbell was pretty surprised when I grabbed him over lunch. He didn't, he didn't really want, really want to be talking to me right then. But, you know, the message did finally get through. I'm glad he, he made the decision he did. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> Tom, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for, this movie and sort of this experience because I was recently hired to be a poker consultant on a movie and I sort of used Casino Royale and I could tell certain spots where you probably had a hard time getting through to them. And I said, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to be the loudest voice in, in these sections. Uh, regardless if, if I piss people off and I get fired, I would rather that happen than have people go, well, what were you doing there at the time? And luckily the director I worked with was super interested in what I had to say. And in fact, consulted me on every shot in the casino and was like, is this right? Is that right? Is this wasn't fully prepared and maybe ran into this too, uh, for how difficult it is to shoot poker and how much coverage you need and how much sort of, um, uh, uh, I forget what they call continuity, uh, there is so I was yeah. running around like a crazy person resetting chips resetting decks of cards uh, like sweating my ass off on set I'm just wondering if you had a similar experience uh, during those actual scenes of like just kind of wanting to die no no fully spared because they basically had all the continuity in place so the stacks would be carefully replaced each time they went back so I was completely relieved of that responsibility um, that's you know the benefits of being on such a massive production is as bonds so that that was um a bit of a relief but you're right there's just there's so much going on to shoot a poker scene it's, it's incredibly complicated in terms of continuity yeah um, and and how did you feel in terms of pressure and stress uh in those situations like you seem like a pretty chill dude uh, but i can imagine like for me for example i was just like it was probably it took years off my life <laughs> No, it's okay actually, because you, you you sort of realise when you're you're on the set there suddenly how much more you know about poker than anyone else there. And of course, the movie in the end, you know, it was called Casino Royale, but it was not really a movie about poker. It wasn't no. setting itself up to be Hollywood finally does poker correctly. So in that sense, um, the pressure was a bit lower because this film wasn't going to sink or swim based on whether the, the, right. the plots were plausible or not. You know, I think it's fair to say objectively that everything looks and feels authentic about the poker game and about the casino. And I have to give you credit, Tom, because the way the players do handle themselves feels real, especially Mads Mikkelsen. There is someone who just looks like they've spent a lot of time at a poker table. I mean, had he any poker experience coming into this or was this all your hard work? The only poker experience I specifically saw was I took him down to the gut shop club, as it was back then. <laughs> In Clerkenwell, and we Fantastic. played a hundred pound tournament. I think, in fact, not just him, three of the other guys came along. That's all. It's bizarre. I mean, I, I spoke to the the production team. And I said, you know, just float these guys maybe twenty grand just to play in some proper competitions. 
you know, to get a real sense of what's going on. And they were bizarrely kind of stingy about it. When you think how much money they must have been spending on everything, I mean, the amount of Bollinger I personally drank on that <laughs> set. <laughs> The amount of swordfish rats I put on ten pounds on that set, and they're only prepared to stiff up to to um, stump up four hundred quid for for these guys to go off to a fairly seedy joint in Clerkenwell to to learn a bit about poker. So I mean, if Mess was learning things about what poker players look like, he was learning from the gut shot clientele. I promise you, and, and that was obviously informing his performance. The idea of Le Chief playing at the gut shot is just too good, <laughs> so, so good. good. Look, everybody um, has to get their start somewhere. Everyone has to build a bankroll somehow. <laughs> Now we are going to look at some of the hands. We are going to look at some of the hands in detail. How much shit have you had from poker fans over the years, Tom, for some of these hands in this movie? Because some people are not fans. Some people roll their eyes. Some people feel that Casino Royale has done poker a disservice. Can I tell you what the most shit I've had? It, it's not from poker players. It's from people who don't play poker who say. God, the scenes were so long. They were so long. <laughs> oh, wow. And you're like, if it was up to me, they would have been way longer because they need a lot more context, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So so you kind of see really what, what the production was dealing with is they had to get through it. Um, and they were they probably, they probably made it about as long and as complicated as they possibly could have yeah. while not alienating. Though that huge number of people who just go to see Bond and you know doing the cars and doing the chicks and stuff. I mean So so that's where the shit comes from. You know, poker, yeah. too much poker in Casino Royal. I remember when I got my hands on the special edition Blu-ray, which had deleted scenes, and I was naively thinking, this is going to be awesome. It's going to have like the full-length poker game, not a single outtake from the poker game in that. That footage must exist somewhere, and there's shots in some of the trailers, but I don't know where it is. I, for one, would watch it. Um, so the very first hand of poker in the movie, you've already referenced it, is on Le Chief's yacht. It's kind of like Le Chief's home game on a boat uh, where he does say he has two pair. It's a kind of inconsequential hand that just introduces the idea of poker being in the movie and obviously introduces Le Chiffre as a mathematical genius who, when he puts his opponent on a straight draw, is able to pin him down to the, his exact percentage equity uh, in the hand. Um, it's, it's a great moment and very much establishes the character of Le Chiffre. And I, I think... Your question, Joe, is does he have it? Was he lying? Does he actually have a uh, two pair in that situation? That is that is that is my question, but it's not even really so much my question as it is in your mind, Tom, did you know what was happening even behind uh, beneath the whole cards? No, and there was no need to because, you know, that, that's not a, a hand that, that's going to be subjected to any kind of analysis of whether yeah. there's evidence of mathematical genius here. It's just in that long run of sort of that poker mythology of the mathematical genius. Right. You know, there's that scene in Rounders, I think, where Matt Damon just reads off everyone's hands without looking at them because he's the, he's the boy, he's the dude. So it's not really anything to do with poker, that. That's just, yeah. if you like, that's they've got to pay lip service to that idea because that's what everyone thinks poker is all about, right? You know, mathematical geniuses being, in the end, outmaneuvered by someone with a class of Bond. That, that's where we're always going to head with a movie like this. Yeah. So Bond plays his first hand of poker at the Ocean Club in the Bahamas. It's the hand where he wins the Aston Martin DB5, Aces versus Dimitrios' Kings. And I actually love this hand because it actually kind of confronts the movie cliche head on. When Demetrius goes for his checkbook, the dealer is like, no, table stakes only. And like, he tries to put his car keys and she's like, no, you can't do that. And Bond's kind of like, no, let him. It's okay. It's good. <laughs> but I love the fact that it's almost like you're not actually allowed to do this in a poker game. It makes it clear 
The only issue I have with this scene, and I know it's a real poker nerds thing, and the fact that the dealer was apparently played by the manager of an actual poker room, the fact that she announces Bond's hand as trip aces rather than a set of aces still, still niggles me to this day, Tom. I know what you mean. It, it, when I when I hear that, it just it just sticks out. Why say that? Why introduce uh, the the not quite right term when you've just used the right term previously? It doesn't make sense. But you know, it's all colour, and of course, lots of people out there will know what a set is. Uh, won't know what a set is, but they'll know what trips are. So she's basically giving you a, a kind of translation, but also trying to explain for the poker nerds that actually it's a set. So, so I came I came up with this uh, after defending certain things that happened in my movie by saying. I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely had a bad dealer in the Bahamas before. Someone who didn't know the difference between trips or a set. And it's totally realistic that sometimes people get things wrong, even in real life. Yes. And I would say, and I think this is important to stress, that a lot of the issues that people have, and again, we're going to come to the final hand soon. You're assuming that everyone plays poker perfectly or knows all the terminology or just because someone has 10 or 15 million dollars to play in a high stakes game doesn't mean they're the world's best poker player just means that they're super rich right and they have an ego so some of the decisions that people make are fine because guess what people make mistakes and people may not be the world's best poker player um so we are going to talk about the first big hand that we see at Casino Royale. And I believe, and, and, and Tom, I don't know if you know what the whole cards are meant to be in this situation. We know that Le Chiffre has a pair of deuces. We don't see Bond's cards. They're not important, and it's inconsequential to the hand. It's the nine high flop, all hearts, nine of clubs on the turn, deuce on the river. Le Chiffre is bluffing throughout the hand. Bond calls him down, and that's the hand where we see that actually Le Chiffre got very lucky and caught that deuce on the river for a full house, but was bluffing the whole way through, and that's the point where Bond picks up the tell. This is a decent hand. All's good in the hood with this one. Yeah, I think they did this really well, because the point of the scene is to introduce the tell. So that, that's yes. why it's said dramatically. And they could have done it in a sort of flabby way. Bond could have said, you know, I, I've worked out the tell. But they, they sort of dropped all that into quite a nice sort of narrative. And then Vesper doesn't quite get it because she says, but you lost. He wasn't bluffing the other two. And then Bond says, no, in fact, he was basically bluffing. The two arrived at the end. So they, they did a pretty good job there, I think, of of spinning a poker story around what was in the end supposed to be just a plot point. Yeah. We, we don't know what Bond had, of course. No, we don't. We don't. But, you know, it, it, in, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. He he, he he folds, he mucks at the end because he obviously can't beat Le Chiefs full house. And ultimately, he got the information. And sometimes paying for information is worth the price. Uh, I know I'm going out of sequence now, but the fourth hand is Felix's elimination hand. It's Le Chiefs got ace queen. Felix has got ace jack. Both have two pair. Kicker decides it. Standard hand. All good. I love the way that Felix disgustingly throws the ace jack to see that he's been out kicked by one spot and just walks away from the table. Um, Was Jeffrey Wright one of the people you worked with? Because uh, you know, I, I I bought him as you know the American CIA agent who is like kind of begrudgingly playing poker and was like kind not super good at it, but at least had played before. Listen, Jeffrey Wright was sick for poker. He he hadn't played before, but once he got his hands on some chips. I mean, he came off the set, he would be straight back into playing poker. I must have dealt, I don't know, a thousand hands of poker between between takes for Jeffrey Wright uh, and Mess Mickelson. 
So they were playing poker constantly. He couldn't get enough of it. So he was fully sick for poker. Fantastic. That's it what shows, happened though. with uh, Oscar Isaac was the actor I worked with, and he would, in between takes, run back over to the, to the actual casino and, and jump back in a 2-4 limit game. Yeah, this okay. is how poker grabs it. Yeah. So we've come to the controversial hands now, Tom, and you've already referenced the the false tell hand, right? This is where Le Chiffre has jacks. Uh, he ends up with quads. Bond has ace king for a full house. The board is ace king jack jack king. James Bond does not let his ego get in the way in this spot. Nor did he have to think that Le Chiffre was bluffing. This is a cooler, pure and simple. And I'm interested in what advice you may have given on this hand because you kind of feel that bond needs to have something really thin here maybe just a bare ace for this to legitimately be him calling le Chief's bluff yeah sure i mean if if we were going to uh, if we we're going to imagine ourselves as, as james bond at the world series of poker doing this brilliant read this amazing tell We'd, we'd pump it up. We'd have ace high or a pair, just a rubbish pair. And the board would be obviously representing, you know, maybe four cards to a straight or four cards to a flush. Yeah. That's how we would do it as poker players to say, this is how good I am or Bond is. He can make this call. But the trouble is that nearly everyone watching this sees James Bond go in with ace high, lose to a massive hand, and Bond is a chump. That's just the way it is. You know, most people are simply not going to see that. And to be honest, you know, if you did do this yourself, if you made that hero call and you went in like James Bond with your ace high, and in fact you'd read it wrong, as Bond did, yeah. you would also feel like a chump and you'd look like a chump. So I think in this situation for the movie, for nearly everyone who's watching apart from the real hardcore poker players, if Bond is going to lose through his own volition, through making a big call, He's got to lose with something big. Otherwise, he's just a loser. And that's just one of those places where beautiful poker, you know, beautiful poker has to go in the end in favor of we must have Bond going out with a big hand, not, not a load of rubbish here. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, at least from like, look, we look at things from the perspective of, you know, one half of one percent of the audience. And for this one half of one percent of the audience, him making this hero call with ace high or with a pair of sevens or something makes sense to us. But I see what Tom's saying that uh, if you put that in the movie, the other 99.5% you know, of people is not going to understand what that means at all. I think that this scene of like he was bluffing or your ego got in the way still makes sense uh, to, to a, a much greater portion of the audience, even though we're all like, ooh, that's not exactly what happened. Yeah, it, it just knocks me when Lashif says... You must have thought I was bluffing, Mr. Bond. I just want Bond to stand up and go, I had a full house. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> um, so the final hand, and I guess if there are two things I've always had an issue with, it's the cooler hand we just discussed. And I don't have a problem with James Bond having a straight flush versus Le Chief's full house. Tom, I'm interested where it came from, and I guess it was probably in the original script. Why are these other two guys still in at the end? Why did they not have it heads up, Bond versus the villain, just as it was in the book, Bond versus Le Chief, albeit at the Baccarat table? I don't know. I think for purposes of drama, obviously, it's again, it's extremely unusual for four people to be present in, in the final hand of a tournament. Uh, although, of course, it's less likely if it's a, a winner takes all. 
But I think it works dramatically to have the actual hand as a kind of summing up the whole tournament, to have it funnel down from some also-rans down to, to Bond and his nemesis. And, of course, most of the action is in the side pot, anyway, the, the big side pot there between uh, Bond and Le Chiffre. So I don't really have a problem with that. Um, it's not representative of, of the way poker tournaments normally end. And also don't forget that, you know, just poker is going to be boring for a lot of people. So it gives the the DOP, the, the director of photography, something to shoot to. So he can he cut away from Bonds uh, and Le Chiffre to one of the other players. So it gives a bit of colour there, um, gives him a bit more to work with. Now, Tom, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned you, it's the first time the word tournaments come up. And one of the things that I've noticed about these, you know, this last bit here is that it's kind of played like a tournament, referred to as a tournament, but it really feels more like a winner-take-all cash game. Um, especially that I think they're playing with cash chips even, right? Well, to me, it's always felt like a single-table tournament where the buy-in has a direct value of the chips. So the, the, they are effectively tournament right. chips, but 100 k actually equates to $100,000. Yes, it's basically a cash game you can't walk away from. So yeah, yeah because Bond tips with a chip at the end. So, <laughs> oh, let's not go into that. No, but not- that's what I'm saying. Look, in my mind, which may, in my mind, if it's a winner take all cash game, then everything about this works for me. Yeah, that's very kind of you, Jake. To be honest, I think it should be re- should be recognised as a tournament because that's yes. what it was. Based. And and the chip at the end is again, it's one of those things where we could have had Bond, you know, root around his back pocket and some exchange <laughs> and, and and gain out some. Can chewing I write gum, you a check? You know? <laughs> I would have less of an um, issue if then Herr Mendel <laughs> referred to the one hundred and fourteen point five million that Bond had because five hundred k had gone to the dealer. Um, but Tom, you very kindly have shared the hand history because i think it's important to say in the film we join the action on the turn the turn card is dealt but we don't know how we got to this point with these four players and i think the stacks are important here we're talking about 115 million in chips because there were 10 original buy-ins and five players decided to rebuy for 5 million so 115 million in chips we know because the dealer's already established, or the, the the floor person who sat in the umpire's chair, uh, that the blinds are 500k and a million. And we've got two short stacks at the table. So we've got Mr. Fakutu, who's got 12 big blinds. We've got Infante, who's got 11 big blinds. But this is comes back to the point I was saying earlier. We can sit here and say, well, they should be playing all in or fault hold'em. They should not be just limping. They shouldn't be like calling like 4 million or 5 million bets without shoving. But that assumes that they're playing perfectly. They, they play badly. That. They play badly in this hand, and that's fine. Not everyone plays poker well. Um, I had always assumed that there would have been some kind of pre-flop raise. But interestingly, everyone just limps. So Bond's in the small blind. Fakutu's in the big blind. That means Infante limps with eights. Le Chiffre limps on the button with a six. Bond completes with 7-5 of spades, and Fakutu checks his option with king-queen of spades. I do think it's weird that none of these players decide to raise pre, that Infante and Fakutu don't go with these pretty premium holdings four-handed, but it's not impossible. It's not even improbable. It just means everyone's playing either cautiously or imperfectly, right? 
I think the the two most questionable players, as you say, are Infanto and, and Fakutu, is that their plays in that hand are probably the least justifiable. But of course, they're supposed to be the weakest players, as as you as you say, there are going to be weaker players there who can get through to the end. Lashif calling with a six, I mean, it's not a terrible play, and of course, Bond in the small blind with a with a big old stack of Lashifs, uh, flat calling or rather completing with they have seven five. Again, it's it's not a terrible play for my money. So, Tom, I guess my question about this hand is, how did this hand evolve? Did it start with, I want it to end this way? How do we make that happen? Either Martin or the screenwriter saying it. Did it start with them saying, uh, with them coming to you and saying, can you design a hand that has everyone all in by the river? Like, what, how exactly did this hand get written? Basically, it was written when I arrived. It, it, the actual hands were written as are, and, and I was pretty happy with what was there. The main difference between what we started with and what we ended with was the bet sizes. So in the previous version of the script, um, the main pot between all four of them was, was actually bigger than the side pot between Le Chiffre and Bond. And, and clearly that just means that the final action it becomes irrelevant because they're, they're being sucked into the pot anyway, never mind the fact that it's supposed to be all about the sheaf versus Bond. So that kind of got worked out on set when Martin Campbell was there and, and Le Chief, uh was on my side here. He was saying, this, this is crazy. It's me staring at, at Daniel across his chips and all the, all the other chips are over there. This <laughs> So the, the shooting stopped then for about 90 minutes and God knows how much it must have cost to stop, you know, everything for 90 minutes. Uh, while we talked about it, we sort of moved chips around in real time just to see what would make sense. Um, and then it, it sort of made sense and, and shooting went back to, everyone sort of basically, basically came back from the canteen and said, okay, they've got it out of their system now. Now can we go, go on with making a movie? <laughs> so when you say that the hand uh, was written, uh, all right, was it written start to finish or just uh, from where we see it in the movie? So the, the actual uh, full hand had been written down in sort of a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, so, so I could see what was happening. <clears throat> and, but the, the script as shown in the movie started, I think, uh, as you say, on the, the turn. Or it's, the on the turn. Right? it's on the yeah. turn. It's on the turn. Yeah. So Bond, Bond has everyone, has the biggest stack at the start of the hand, 46.5 million. The sheaf, only 1 million less, 45.5 million. And we've established that Fakuta and Infante have 12 and 11 million, respectively. Everyone limps, and we get to this ace, six, eight flop with two spades. So Bond already has a straight flush draw. The Sheaf has two pair. Uh, Infante has a set, and Fakutu has the flush draw. And again, I should say very quickly, there is that infamous meme of Mads Mikkelsen where it says, calls a raise out of position with ace, six, offsuit, um, loses $115 million and dies. Number one, He's in position. He's on the button. Number two, no raise. We now know there was no raise pre-flop. This is new information. I don't think this has ever been discussed or revealed before. I mean, we just changed the to, to limps the button instead, and it yeah. still works. He, he's, he still probably <laughs> makes a mistake, but that's by the by. Um, so this is interesting, Tom. So in, in the hand history, everyone checks the action to Le Chiffre on the button, who bets five million, who overbets the pot with two pair, and all players call. And again, at this point, it would be very easy to say, what the hell are players like Fakuto and Infante doing just calling off half their chips? They're committing themselves to the pot. Infante's got a set and should be betting to protect. Fakuto's got a monster draw. He should be going with it. But again, if you establish that these aren't very good poker players, it makes sense. Yeah, also don't forget, Infante might just be hoping that Le Chief will do his betting for him. 
you know, there are other reasons of the situation. There. He might think that Nashif's going to bet this flop, whether he's he's caught a piece of it or not. So there, there's a motive there for him to do what he does. Uh, so I don't mind that so much. Yeah. So the four of spades is the absolute killer card because that is now giving Bond the straight flush. It's giving him the winning hand. Uh, it also does give Fakutu the gives him a flush, a losing flush, and well. Everyone's drawing dead. But regardless of that, everyone now checks. And that's in the movie. Everyone checks the turn. And I get that from everyone's perspective. There's a lot of slow playing going on. I guess there's some caution from Lashif. Now the spade has come. And then we get the ace of spades on the river. So now, of course, Fakutu improves to the nut flush. Um, We see Infante River a full house. And Lashif River a better full house. Bond still ahead with the straight flush. This is one of those situations which I guess is highly improbable, but it's not impossible. And, I mean, Joe, we've covered a lot of poker on around the world. We've covered a lot of televised tournaments. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that you would have something this ridiculous. No, not at all. And so when I first saw this movie, it was I'd been in poker for one year. And so my sort of... I thought I was an expert uh, and I hadn't really, and I thought I had seen a lot of poker. And so this came across to me as very unrealistic. And then 15 years later, having watched tons of poker, thousands and thousands of hands, it's become less and less unrealistic to me over the years. This shit does happen. There are wild things that happen in poker. And I've really come to realize that like I was being way too hard on it at the time. Coolers happen all the time. And in fact, I, st- I I would contend that tournaments are decided by coolers way more often than someone making a hero call. Way more often than someone outplaying someone else. It's almost always, how often, James, are we doing poker tournaments where we're three and four hand and we're like, when will this end? And we're just waiting for the cooler to happen. It's true. And we have seen a four-way all-in to end a final table. It's Yes, we it, have. It, it happened seven years ago at the Canada Cup. But anyway, back to Casino Royale, Tom. And of course, the hand then plays itself because everyone just gets all their chips in, right? I think, you know, we've established that really players like Fakuta and Infante should have got their chips in sooner. But the reality is they're all in on the river, playing for the side pot, the big battle between Le Chiffre and Bond. I mean... I get, again, why they did it for dramatic purposes, where everyone reveals their cards in turn. Did you point out that Bond is effectively slow-rolling everyone? (laughs) No, because, of course, in in the mind of the average punter, that's what suave Bond would do. We know that that makes him a total schmuck. (laughs) We, We know that. But, you know... Most people who walk into a casino for the first time and play a hand of poker and they get they get a big hand, they think that's what they're supposed to do. And they can't understand why they're getting all the abuse they get when they, they slow roll it. Uh, and never mind the fact that Le Chief was slow rolled him so appallingly earlier with his, his jack. So, you know, it is poetic justice there. So it, it was always going to be like that, you know. And likewise with the, the very slow uh, revelation of hands in the wrong order. Obviously, they should sort out the side pot first and then go yeah. to the little tiny main pots. But it, you know, it's just not going to happen because then for Kutu and Infante, all they've done becomes irrelevant. So it's yeah. a bit weird to have shown them in the first place is what is what the, the sort of movie goer thinks and then find out, okay, well, where did they go? What, what were their hands worth? Tom, so, I, 
Sorry, James. I, one uh, question I want to get in there because I think we're nearing at the end of our time. Is is there anything that you begged them not to do? That's what I was going to ask. That you like that you were please don't do this. Please, please, please don't do this. And they did it anyway. <laughs> no, not really. The okay. only thing I was I was super worried about was was a clangor of bonds basically going all in when he thought the sheaf was bluffing. Once that was in place, I was happy to let the drama roll. So when you look Fair back enough. on it now, are you generally happy? Is there anything you think now I would suggest differently or have tried to steer them in a different direction? No, not really. I'm super happy with it. I, I thought it was it was great poker. I really do. Yeah. And as you say, it's not a poker movie. Poker forms part of the movie. And as an overall experience, and we just spent a long time discussing this film, I still think it's probably the best entry in the 007 canon. Um, Tom, thank you so much for giving up time today. I know obviously you have a full-time job. You're a busy man, uh, but it was great chatting about that era. Great chatting about your work on this film and reliving the poker moments from Casino Royale. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, enough of our yakking. We asked you at home to post your own short review of Casino Royale on Discord, and we did say that we would select... 007 reviews at random, which would become 007 winners of the limited edition Poker in the Ears artwork signed by Joe Stapleton and myself. (laughs) So if you hear your name come up here, Patrick C is going to get in touch with you via direct message on Discord to get your details and we will send you your prize we start with pj cunning one who says really like casino royale especially after the brosnan films went so over the top in the last couple they were almost slapstick casino royale was refreshing a lot more realistic and gritty very good film with probably the final poker scene being the weakest part for the likes of us anyway i get why people have issues with the poker in the film joe but overall i don't have a massive problem with it and that's the only thing in pj cunning's review i would disagree with Yeah, well, hopefully after PJ listens to the interview we just did, maybe PJ comes around a little bit. Uh, Dave Alderson Wild. For me, this is the film that reinvigorated Bond. The journey he goes on from the first scene to the last is epic. Not so sure about his poker pedigree, but the reason I find myself still losing pots to this day, holding five, seven (laughs) of spades. Hashtag losing moments. I mean, look, it still makes sense to me that the British government might not understand what exactly makes a good poker player because those of us in this industry um, really understand what makes a good poker player. But go anywhere else in the world and they'll be like, hey, uh, you know, Roger over there, he's the poker player in the office. And Roger usually doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So that actually still works for me. Colin B7 describes it as the film that relaunched the Bond franchise. Prior to this, it had been meandering and seemed very formulaic. Royale was dark, gritty, loved Daniel Craig in this role. The poker content really helped. Uh, Then we've got Bisson, who says Casino Royale brought Bond into the 21st century with a great dark modern film, bringing a vital reignition to the Bond flame. The way the film opens in black and white with Bond's story of how he got his 007 status was just beautiful and only the beginning of what I think is Craig's best 007 film. I agree with Bisson. I, I also agree with business. So the way 007s work is that, so before that, you get assigned to kill people. And then once you do that, once you hit those two assignments, then you're allowed to just kill whoever you want. And then you got to kind of explain yourself later. You officially have a license to kill. Nice. Uh, Yapo says Casino Royale is a masterpiece. Before hashtag death by quads, there was, oops, you must have thought I was bluffing, Mr. Bond. 
<laughs> it also has a deeper meaning because the viewer learns that you can be useful by being dead inside the trunk of a car. It teaches us the value of being untied and being able to deal with those funny itches in hilarious places. I like it. Plenty of references to the film there, Yapo. Good uh, review. Bucky says Casino Royale was great. Loved Eva Green as Vespa. Good action sequences. Uh, poker was meh. Makes it seem that every hand is a cooler. But I wish I was the dealer in that game. Nice tip at the end. Didn't notice that the first time I watched the film. Looking forward to you guys talking about the film. Hope you've enjoyed our conversation about it, Bucky. Finally, Carl Gordon Stanley. I do love this. It is a fake quote attributed to Lashif. I'm going to burn this fucking place down if I don't win this fucking <laughs> tournament. <laughs> I mean, that's not far off. That's not really very <laughs> far off. It, he, he just torched James's nuts instead. Exactly. Going to destroy this guy's balls. Uh, there is one final listener whose views on Casino Royale we are going to get, and we are going to give that listener the chance to win surprises. It is time for this week's Super Fan Quiz. And joining us to answer questions about Casino Royale is Liam Devine. Hello, Liam. Hello, James. How are you? Good, thanks. I knew we wouldn't have any problems connecting with you because I believe you are daring to stream. I am. Yes. Oh, yeah. Liam, what's what's your thing? What's your what what? Give me an elevator pitch on why I should watch Liam Devine stream. Um, because I have an aesthetically pleasing round shiny head. Correct. Yes. Agreed. Story checks out. Yep. Um, I don't think there are many people streaming low stakes Zoom cash, so I think uh, people could uh, enjoy seeing that for a bit of a change from from the tournament grind. And um, yeah, watch me watch me slowly lose my mind. Uh, those <laughs> uh, those are uh, good answers. Um, so Liam, when you are not streaming yourself playing low limit Zoom, what is your life about? Um, I am a photographer in my spare time. Uh, I'm trying to get into uh, doing wedding photography as a bit of a career. Um, cool. But currently I work in IT. Um, of course you do. What just, the fuck? I mean, what is going on? It, can I just make it clear? It is not a prerequisite. We do accept super fans who don't work in IT. Is it? Is it kind of like if we did this show 100 years ago, everybody would be like, well, I work in a factory. A telegram like, operator. <laughs> <laughs> um, um so, yeah so you very kindly have volunteered to be our casino royale super fan now again <clears throat> i made it clear at the start of the show that this is 90 percent a patrick quiz with a little bit of jimmy the bastard thrown in for good measure you'll know when they're my questions um, Superb. patrick has broken it into rounds there is an international round there is a money round there is a food and drink round so we're going to go in order of round um because we set the subject, Liam, we're going to up the stakes. Normally, oh, it'll be a $109 Sunday Million ticket. I'm going to give you the chance to win a $215 ticket that will get Ooh. you entry to the special Big 20 Rewind tournament on Sunday the 21st of November, which is celebrating 2006, the year of the Sunday Million. And that is an event that we will be streaming. So hopefully... You can go deep, and we will see you on our broadcast on the Monday. But I doubt it. That's the one that comes with the bonus prize of the sporting event, right? Uh, it does. It does have tickets to a sporting event on a Sunday. On Plus, a Sunday. 
it has added tickets for the Big 20 finale. Plus, it's going to have a decent price pool. Plus, there is, of course, PokerStars merch that you're going to get whether you win or lose. But let's see how you fare. I think you may have seen the film more recently than Joe, which I think makes you the favourite. Our first round is about locations. It's what Patrick calls the international round. There are four questions, so please give me a number between one and four. Uh, one. Question number one. Okay, if you can get the answer without the multiple choice options, two points. In which city does Bond kill Demetrios? Miami. For two points. And your Jimmy the Bastard bonus question. <laughs> In which city was that scene actually filmed? Is there a multiple choice for that? There isn't. It's a bonus question. Um, Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> no, it was actually filmed in Prague. And that building where the Body Worlds exhibition is taking place, Joe and I have walked past many, many times. It's amazing, though. You put some yellow cabs outside it, everyone thinks it's Miami. Joe's yellow cabs in Prague, don't they? <laughs> uh, uh, there's one very famous Prague taxi, but I don't think it's yellow. <laughs> two, three, or four, Joe, moving swiftly on. <laughs> Just give me number two. In which city does Bond kill Dryden? Bond kills Dryden in Prague. Correct. For two points, your bonus question. In which city was this scene actually filmed? London. It was a trick question. The answer was actually Prague. Prague. Three or four, Liam? Uh, let's go four. Number four. In which country is Le Chief first shown on screen? Oh. It's the very opening shot of the movie after the credits. Um, Multiple choice options the, are available if you want to take them. After the credits, did you say? That's after Uganda. the titles. Uganda, Uganda is the answer for two points. Wow. Congratulations. I was, I was thinking of the yacht scene. Was Congo no. one of the choices? No. Okay. I was trying. I was like, that was what was in my head. Anyway, Liam got Uganda, but you Jimmy the Bastard bonus question. In which country was this scene actually filmed? And I will give you a clue. It was not Uganda. Um, the United Kingdom. Correct. Just outside London. Gets you the bonus points. <laughs> Joe, question three. Yeah. In which country does Bond go on a wild chase to catch and kill a bomb maker? Madagascar. Correct for two points. Your bonus question, in which country was the scene actually filmed? United Kingdom. There's no way that construction site is in the United Kingdom. The Bahamas. The Bahamas. So, after the first round, the score is five points to Liam, four points to Joe. The second round is the money round. No bonuses here, just Patrick questions, multiple choice options available. Liam, five, six, seven, or eight? Eight, please. How much does Mr. Fakutu go all in for in the final hand of the tournament? Can I have multiple choice, please? Is he all in for one million, two million? Four million or six million? Six million. Six million for one point. Joe, five, six, or seven? Five, please. Le Chief 
loses $100 million by shorting the stock of which company? I'll take the choices. Hotel Splendide, Airtrax, Skyfleet, or Zoomfly? Skyfleet. Correct for a point. Six or seven, Liam? Seven. What is the size of the big blind in the very first hand of the poker tournament? Oh. Can I have multiple choice? Is it 500, 1,000, 10,000, or 100,000? I think it's 100,000. Incorrect. It's 10,000. Joe, you can take the lead here if you can get this question without the options. All right. Question six. What hold cards does Dimitrios have when he loses his car to Bond? Pocket Kings. Correct. And you have a one-point advantage going into the penultimate round. This is the first time I've had a lead at oh. any point in these quizzes in about eight months. It is the food and drink round. 9, 10, 11, or 12, Liam? Nine. What food and drink is Solange left with when Bond goes off to chase her husband? Uh, caviar and champagne. Correct. For one. Two points to Liam and Joe, 10, 11, or 12? 10. How does Bond describe his lamb while on the train with Vespa? I'll need the choices. Butchered, diced, assaulted, skewered. Skewered. One sympathizes. So we have a tied game. Your final question in the penultimate round, Liam, 11 or 12? 11, please. James Bond requests a very specifically made drink at the poker table. What does he later name that drink? A Vesper. Correct, for two points. Damn it. Joe, question 12. Who was it who actually poisons Bond's drink during the poker game? Multiple choice options are available. Uh, all right, I'll take the choices. Is it Le Chief? Is it Vespa? Is it Mathis? Or is it Valenka? Valenka. It is Valenka, Le Chief's girlfriend. So there's only one point in it. And we go into the final round. It's Jimmy the Bastard's bonus round worth double points. Four points if you can get it without the option. Whoa. Two points with. Whoa. Ooh. Liam, to flip. 13 or 14. Odd or even. Which do you want? Uh, 13, please. Dryden is Bond's second kill. What is the name of his first? <laughs> He's uh, literally sweating. Can I have multiple choice for this? He's wiping the sweat from his brow right now. It's not, it's not mentioned on screen, is it? Can I have a, no, uh, that's why it's a Jimmy the Bastard question. You need to read and see the credits or look at the IMDb page. Is I, it, I had done and forgot. Is it Fisher, Foster, Fredrickson or Falan? I'm going to say Fisher. It is Fisher, and that means you get two points. Okay, so Joe, you are going to have to get this without the options to win the game. Mm -hmm. Taking the options would only see you get two points, and you'd still be a point behind. So okay. it all hinges on this question. All right. Vespa admires Bond's watch on the train. We know the brand, Omega. But what is the model?
the Omega Aqua Mariner. No, it is the Seamaster, and that means... Oh, man, I was pretty fucking close. I, I could have got that one without the prompts as well. Wow. So, um, Liam, congratulations. It was closer than I thought it was going to be. Joe put up a good showing, but you do win this special edition of Superman versus Tapes. We'll give you that special $215 ticket to that Big 20 Rewind event. Plus, we will give you some PokerStars merch as well. Thank you very much, guys. Congratulations, Cheers. Liam. Nice work. Thanks for coming on the show and best of luck as you continue to dare to stream. Thank you very much. Just just before I go, I just wanted to say, I don't know if anyone's taken the opportunity to do this, but lockdown was rubbish. And I tweeted a few of the streamers and stuff to say thank you for, for keeping us up to date with like free entertainment during it. But you guys as well, um, I never got a chance to say, well, I don't know if anyone else has. Sorry to get smushy on you. A few but, people um, have, but we appreciate it, Liam. And here's something cool, right? Maybe you'll be one of those people uh, providing free entertainment for people in the future. We'll see. So, thank you very much. Liam, thank you very much for the kind words, and congrats once again. No worries, guys. Take it easy. Have a good night. All right, my Bond babies, that is just about all the time we have got for this week's show. Next week, we have got even more fun shit coming up. Uh, We're going to be talking to one of the people who was there for the launch of Poker Stars in 2001. Terrence Chan is going to be on the show. And Terrence, yeah, Terrence, love that dude. And Terrence is going on to do some very interesting things with his life. So hopefully we can talk to him about both the past and the present. Plus, the EPT GOAT. I don't like throwing the word GOAT around. However, if we're talking about uh, just consistent success on the European Poker Tour, we have to speak to Luca Pagano. Big bucks. Broncos. That's right. Crazy number of caches on the EPT. Was there for all of it back in the day. And this is super cool. I'm pretty excited for this. Uh, not just because of connection to the EPT, but because he's like a legit celebrity now. And that's that's the kind of shit that really gets me up in the morning. Uh, we'll be speaking to the original voice of the EPT, Colin Murray, will be on the show. And you know what? I always as a joke refer to him as Colin Murphy, but once I, I feel like once I know him, I can't do that anymore. No, you can't. So Terrence, Luca, and Colin on next week's show. And then the week after, we're going to be talking the big game with Antonio Esfandiari, Shark Cage with Maria Ho. We've got some other fun guests planned for future weeks. And at some point, Joe, again, this is becoming the London School of Economics bit. VR. We've got to find a day. We've got to find a time. The time difference doesn't help, right? Right. It doesn't help, and it doesn't help that we genuinely have a whole bunch of stuff already planned for the months of November and December. So honestly, this might not happen until January, guys. I'm not going to lie. But as we all know, the time from um, November 1st to January 1st is like that, right? It's just like that. It goes so quickly. I do have one question, because I've mentioned that I've played PokerStars VR a couple of times now, and again, still getting to grips literally with it. Um, what stakes do you have to play at for it not just to be every player all in every hand? Pretty big, pretty right. big. But you know what? I got connections over there. So what I'll get them to do is to uh, is to give us a nice little chunk of change so that we can uh, get into the bigger games. Now, one thing that you can't avoid is that it is a community in there. 
and you're very likely to be joining a game where a bunch of people know each other and are there hanging out. But they at least, as a, as my good friend Look to Winward said, this is where this came from, James, was from PokerServe's VR. Once you get to certain stakes, it's not real money, but it is life or death. Fantastic. I look forward to that. Um, by the way, I am the real James H. If you see me at the VR tables and I, I kind of look like me in a suit. I, I went to a lot of trouble to design my avatar to make it look as close to the real me as possible. So uh, if I see you at the tables, please say hello. They have slot machines in the lobby now. And the last time I played, I didn't get past those. <laughs> just <laughs> just like me in real life. Where I'm you like, uh, I could go get bad beat in there. I could just see her pressing buttons and, and have a really good time. Oh, I forgot something really important. Uh, yes. I appreciate we are running out of time, Joe. But yeah. in addition to using Discord to comment on the show, guys, we do need a super fan for next week. So I've booked up till the end of the year however next week's superfan has literally just dropped out today oh. so we are sans superfan for next week so if you are available if you want to come on the show next week we'll be recording next wednesday please let us know in the dedicated thread on the pokestars discord server link in the description and we'll be in touch and hopefully we can work something out all right, my babies, that is, in fact, all the time we have got for this week's show. Until next time, for James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. Later.